Good morning, church. My name is Roman, and I'm the college pastor here at Grace, and it's an honor to get to open God's Word, to meditate on it together with you this morning. There's an old saying, and I wonder if you've heard it. It was new to me. I read it recently. It says, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. Now, the power in a saying like this is that it's immediately obvious and apparent. Uh, you don't have to explain it. Uh, but bear with me as I unpack it for, for making a point. The sun radiates light and heat. The sun doesn't change. It's light and heat don't change. But depending on the substance that's exposed to that light and heat, there's a different response. When wax is exposed to the light and heat of the sun, it softens. And it softens so that it can even be molded by the hand of a molder and shaped according to the will of the molder. But with that very same light and heat of the sun, whenever clay is exposed to it, it hardens. It dries up. It becomes crusty and less responsive to a hand of a molder. It's the same sun that melts wax and hardens clay. And I do think that this is a helpful image for us to understand God's saving judgment. God's judgment is light. It defeats and dispels darkness. God's judgment is heat. It burns away what is corrupt and ungodly in order to purify and restore. But when hearts of wax are exposed to the saving judgment of God, the light and heat of God's judgment, they soften. They become responsive to the touch of the molder, to be molded and shaped according to his will. And with the very same light and heat of God's judgment, hearts of clay harden. They dry out. They grow crusty. And they become less and less responsive to the touch of the molder. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. This morning, as we are in Exodus and we look in chapter 7 with the first plague, the Nile being turned to blood, we will be confronted with the light and heat of God's saving judgment. And it gives us this opportunity, and it truly is an opportunity to do a self-assessment and ask, do I have a heart of wax? Do I have a heart of clay? Do I soften in response to God's judgment? Do I harden? If you will, go ahead and grab out your Bible. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7, and if you are using the Pewback Bible, this is on page 49. I know we had the text read, but I always find it helpful to refer to it as we go. And I also want you to physically remember the authority of anything said here is rooted here, not here. Okay, so open up in your Bible. We're in Exodus chapter 7. And let me just set the context a little bit. The story of Exodus, the, the word Exodus literally means, a compound word from Greek, the way out. God is leading the people of Israel on a way out to rescue them for the purpose of relationship with him. God is rescuing a people to himself to have relationship with himself 
Why is he doing that? He's doing that in fulfillment of promises made long ago to old guys named Abraham, his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob. To them, God said, I will bless you. I will multiply you into a great nation with the land, and through you, I will bless the nations. God promised a long time ago to reverse the curse of sin by blessing the nations through the family of Abraham. And that's what he's doing here in the story of the Exodus. He's rescuing that people to fulfill his promises and to bring blessing to the nations. And as we look at this first of ten plagues, the Nile being turned into blood, that rescue mission is unfolding. God is saving a people for himself. But specifically with this act of judgment, here's what God is doing. God reveals himself through saving judgment to harden and soften hearts. God reveals himself through saving judgment to both harden and soften hearts. We're going to break that apart as we walk through. The first thing that I want to take a look at is that God reveals himself through saving judgment. Take a look at Exodus 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. This is where God is speaking to Moses and Aaron and telling them what they are to say to Pharaoh. Verse 16, you shall say to him, the Lord, we're going to come back to that, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it will turn into blood. God is revealing himself through this act of judgment. Notice three different times you have capital L-O-R-D. That is in our English translations. Brent has said this before, just as a quick refresher. In our English translations of the Old Testament, that stands in for the name for God, Y-H-W-H. Most scholars, there seems to be a consensus that it's pronounced Yahweh, Uh, This name is used 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It's the most commonly used name for God. And what does he say? Verse 17, by this, by this act of judgment, by the Nile being turned into blood, you shall know that I am Yahweh. What does that even mean? What's the significance of that name? Why is it tied to judgment? Back in Exodus chapters 3 and 6, God explained the meaning of his name. He explained that, like I said earlier, he is the God who makes faithful promises. Long, long ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he promised that he would bless them, make them into a great nation with a land, and bless the nations through them. And that, now, he was acting to fulfill the promise he made. He explains in Exodus chapter 3, he says, I am who I am. I am who I am. And by my limited understanding, I think what God is saying there is I remain the same. I remain ever consistent. I remain ever faithful. As Hebrews says of Jesus, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is faithful and unchanging. Why is that significant? Because the promises he made, he will keep. The word he spoke, he will fulfill. He is the unchanging, promise-making and promise-keeping God. He's Yahweh. And as he acts in judgment to judge Egypt, to rescue Israel, he's making good on his promise. 
He's making good on his promise to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that significant? Do you know how long it's been since he made those promises? Over 400 years. Were those 400 sweet years? There were lived, many of them, under the oppressive boot of the Egyptian empire on the neck of Abraham's family. Do you think it was easy for the Israelites to think, maybe God forgot? Think it was easy for them to say, maybe he changed his mind. Or perhaps he's just not strong enough to do what he said he was going to do. No. He is Yahweh. He is the I Am. And the promises he made, he will keep. This is why he says, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. God is revealing himself through this act of judgment, that he is the unchanging God who keeps his promises. But he also reveals that he is the king over creation. Who else but the almighty creator God could wield creation as a weapon of judgment? Literally taking one of the biggest rivers in the whole world and turning it to blood. There is no foe against Egypt like Yahweh. He is the almighty creator. He wields creation itself as a weapon of his judgment. And he is revealing himself first and foremost to Pharaoh. Look at verse 17. Who shall know? You shall know, Pharaoh, that I am Yahweh. Why is that significant? Earlier in the story in chapter 5, when Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh for the first time, they say, Yahweh says, let his people go. What does Pharaoh say? (laughs) Who's Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh, and I'm not going to let his people go. See, in Pharaoh's mind, he is the ruler of the world. And these puny people exist merely to build his empire. Whatever God they worship doesn't matter. I don't know Yahweh. I'm not going to let his people go. God says to Pharaoh, before this is over, you'll know who I am. He's revealing himself to Pharaoh, but he's also revealing himself to Egypt. Earlier in chapter 7, up in verse 5, this is what God says, The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God is revealing himself through this act of judgment to the nation of Egypt. This proud, oppressive empire who thinks that they are are the rulers of the world, who thinks that they are the most glorious. God is revealing who they really are, creatures. Creatures who have rebelled against him. He alone is the king over creation. He's revealing himself to Pharaoh, to Egypt, but then also to Israel. Later in chapter 10, Yahweh explains what he is doing through these many acts of judgment. Ten will unfold And this is what he says, You shall tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson, this is Exodus 2.10 if you want to look, You shall tell them how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done amongst them. Why? So that you may know that I am Yahweh. Like I was saying, do you think it would be easy for Israelites living in enslavement, feeling hopeless to turn from God, the true God, Yahweh, to other gods? They need to know he is the promise-making and keeping God. He does not change. And even though it's been centuries, he is faithful. They need to know that. 
But God doesn't keep his self-revelation local. He reveals himself to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to Israel, but then also to the nations. This is in Exodus chapter 9. In verse 16, God is explaining to Pharaoh, you know, I could have just wiped you out real easily, but I haven't for a purpose. This is what he says, verse 16. For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power. Why? So that my name may be proclaimed. Where? In all the earth. In all the earth. So that all nations might know that I am the God who is I am faithful, I am the king over creation, and I am acting to rescue a people. The nations need to know God, and he has his eyes on the nations. What he's doing is revealing himself also to the nations. God reveals himself through saving judgment. He is the unchanging, ever faithful Yahweh. He's the king over creation. God also wisely punishes evil through saving judgment. And I keep using that term, saving judgment, again, because God is not just judging Egypt in and of itself, but he's judging Egypt in order to rescue, to save Israel. And in that saving judgment, God is punishing evil with wisdom. Let's take a look first at how he is judging Pharaoh. He is judging Pharaoh by striking the Nile. How is that a strike against Pharaoh? In ancient Egyptian culture, their pharaohs, their kings, were viewed as semi-divine beings, gods amongst humans. And they were responsible for controlling what they called ma'at, or order. And so when Pharaoh sat on the throne, he controlled order. He's the one who makes things go well so that life can flourish. And it's this blasphemous, self-idolizing man who says, who's Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh, and I'm not going to let his people go. And Yahweh says, here's a warning for you. And he puts his hand around the aorta of Egypt, the Nile, without which that whole land would be nothing but a desert wasteland. It is not only the main source of water, the only source of water, really. There's no groundwater, apparently. But it's a major food source. If you remember, whenever the Nile was struck, all of those fish died. God is striking at the very aorta of Egypt. This is a temporary judgment, seven days. And what he's doing is giving them a chance to see who is in charge here. Yahweh is the king over creation. He is punishing Pharaoh by showing, you have no power here. You do not control order. You are a creature, a human, and I am God. He's wisely punishing Pharaoh, but then God strikes the Nile in order to turn the evil Egyptian empire on its head, to just completely upend the whole thing. This is why God strikes the Nile, and what does it turn into? Blood. You think that's a coincidence? God just made a random choice? Instead of sand, dirt, something else you can't drink? He turns it to blood. And here's why. How did the Egyptians use the Nile before? Not just for water, not just for food, but as a tool of national security. You remember what Pharaoh said? 
These enslaved people, they're multiplying too greatly. They're going to rebel against us. They're going to take over. So if the midwives won't destroy them, we're going to throw their baby boys in the river. So anytime you see a baby Hebrew boy, you cast that thing in the river. I wonder, as the waters ran red, did the Egyptians have the screams of those baby boys echoing in their ears? I wonder, as the waters ran red, did they remember the sobbing mothers bent over on the banks of the Nile feeding the river with their tears? This is not a coincidence that God turns the Nile to blood. It is a witness against the Egyptians for what they've done. God is taking the sin of the Egyptians and bringing it back on their own head. This is the wisdom of God. He sees injustice. He sees oppression. He hates it. And he will do something about it in his own time, in his own way. And he's showing that as he turns denial into blood. But also, in the result of this judgment, we see the wisdom of God. God is turning the tables around. Think back with me. Who earlier in the story was digging in the mud? The Hebrew people. Building the bricks that would build the Egyptian empire at their own cost. Now, who's digging in the mud? The murderous Egyptian oppressors, and they're just trying to get a drink of water. This is the wisdom of God. He overturns oppressive, evil human systems. When God establishes his kingdom on earth, he humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. He is good. He is just. He sees evil and he will deal with it. And as he is judging Egypt, he is demonstrating that wisdom and that righteousness. So God reveals himself through saving judgment. He wisely punishes evil. He also hardens and softens hearts through his saving judgment. This is one of the main points of this text, I think, because of the way that it opens and closes. Take a look at 7, Exodus 7, verse 14 once more. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. This little story unit starts with that. Take a look down at the end, verses 22 and 3. But the magicians of Egypt did the same, turned the water to blood by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his heart, and he did not even take this to, in case you missed it earlier, heart. This is a main point of the text. Pharaoh has a heart of clay, and when it is exposed to the light and the heat of God's judgment, it hardens. What does that mean, to have a hard heart? It can seem kind of like an abstract religious thing to say. The text defines it helpfully for us to be stubbornly unresponsive to God. I told you to let my people go. You have not obeyed. I gave you this severe warning and you don't even give it consideration. It's to be stubbornly unresponsive to God. God, through his saving judgment, hardens hearts. But by his grace, that's not the end of the story. Because he also softens hearts of wax through that very same saving judgment. 
And how do we see that in this text? We don't see it here. But on the very basis of these acts of judgment, we see a pagan prostitute named Rahab who hears the mighty acts of God's judgment and how does she respond? Her heart softens. She comes to repentance and faith in Yahweh. This is what Joshua 2 says. Israel sends some spies into the land that they are about to conquer and live in and there's a woman, like I said, a pagan prostitute named Rahab who houses those spies and she's talking with them, explaining why she's doing that. This is Joshua 2, verse 9 to 11. I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. That's a description of fear. That is fear paralyzing the Canaanites. But how does Rahab herself respond? Is the end of verse 11. For Yahweh, your God, he's God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is the way an ancient person says, I've worshipped other gods, but this is the one true God. He is the ruler of over everything. Heaven and earth is a way of saying over everything. God is the king of creation. That very same acts of judgment that hardened Pharaoh's heart melt Rahab's heart. And she comes to repentant faith in Yahweh. This is the wisdom of God to both harden and soften through his justice. And if we stop there, that would be a nice, neat, tidy theological lesson. You might not like it, but at least it would be clear and concise, right? But we never, ever can stop at just filling our minds with Scripture. We need to respond to it. As James says, the Scriptures are a mirror for us. And as we read them, we're meant to see ourselves in them. As we consider Pharaoh and his hard heart, we're pushed to ask the question, do I have a heart of wax or a heart of clay? Does my heart soften, become responsive to God, to be molded for his will, or does my heart harden, dry up, become more unresponsive to God? I have three next step questions I don't want to walk us through. These are questions just to reflect on. I'm going to unpack them a little bit. But it's to the purpose of helping us think honestly. Do I have a heart of wax or a heart of clay? And as we talk about this, there are some of us who just need to ask the question, do I actually know God? Do I actually know God or do I just know about him? That's for some of us. But for others of us, this is an opportunity for a little bit of a heart clarifier to scrub the plaque that builds up on our arteries. Because all of us, there's none of us who are immune to hardness of heart. So the first question, how do you respond when you hear God's word? This is one of the many ways that God's righteousness 
confronts us in our lives, when we hear God's word preached, how do you respond when you hear God's word? There's a lot of different hard-hearted responses I could talk about in responding to God's word, but I would just focus on this one. Are you continually a sermon critic rather than letting God's preached word critique you? In all honesty, which do you resemble more whenever you walk away from a Sunday morning service? A sports pundit whose job it is to dissect and critique what you just heard? Or a beloved child, a daughter or a son, who your father speaks to in correction for your good? What do you resemble more? Hard hearts are continually sermon critics. And that is just a way of holding God at arm's length. I don't need to respond to the sermon because my response is to critique it. A soft heart is eager to receive correction. It's responsive to what God has to say. Why? Because if God says something, even if it's hard, it's for my good. And I want to live for his glory. Hearts of wax respond to God. Secondly, next question, how do you respond when your sin is called out? When you're called on the carpet, when your sin is called out, how do you respond? This is where I'll get personal for just a moment. Because in honesty, I can look at my life and I can see examples of having a hard heart and, by God's grace, having a soft heart. And as a married man, often this plays out in marriage One of the greatest gifts in my life that God has given me is a beautiful, loving, humble woman. She's honestly probably the most humble person I know. And anytime she has come to me to confront my sin, it's been in gentleness and for my good. But unfortunately, there have been too many times where I've responded with a hard heart. I've tried to defend myself. When my sin is called out, I try to defend myself. And sometimes that looks like getting angry, which is just a flaming shield to try to push her away, protect myself, my anger. There are times whenever I try to respond with justification. If I just explain it away, you'll see that you're wrong and I'm right. Or I'll try to blame shift. I'm not the problem here. You are. How twisted is that? It's what a hard heart does. Defends itself. Or a heart of wax is receptive. And whenever sin is called out, it says, let me just not talk for a second. Let me just honestly self-reflect. Do I have an issue here that needs to be dealt with? Yes, I do. And I need to confess it. I need to ask for forgiveness. And I need to make some changes. A soft heart doesn't try to defend itself. It welcomes godly critique. And so I ask you, how do you respond when your sin is called out? Maybe for you it is a spouse who plays that role often. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's somebody in your small group or a pastor. And they love you enough to sit down with you and have that really awkward conversation to say, hey, there's something we got to talk about. 
And I don't want to, honestly, but I care about you. How do you respond in that moment? Does your heart harden or soften? And then finally, the third question, how do you respond to the gospel of Christ crucified? How do you respond to the gospel of Christ crucified? And this is where the judgment that God lays out on Egypt really comes home for us as Christians. Because all those mighty acts of saving judgment in the past are signposts pointing forward to the ultimate act of saving judgment. Where did that happen? The cross of Jesus the King, where he stood in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly. He took our penalty fully upon himself so that we might be not just forgiven, but reconciled into rich relationship with God. This is the grace of God poured out lavishly in the gospel. How do you respond to that? There's a lot of hard-hearted responses, again, that I could walk through. We could talk about how there are some people who just reject that message. It sounds stupid. I don't care about it. I don't want to hear about it. You might have been drugged to church today. If that's you, we're so glad you're here, honestly. There's other people who would say, yeah, I believe that. I can check the boxes. I can pass the theology quiz. But it makes no difference for their lives. These are different hard-hearted responses. But the one I want to focus on, I think, is more sinister. It's more deadly because it's more subtle. It's to hear this glorious gospel of God's grace. It's freely given. And to respond with nothing more than a yawn and a shrug. Spiritual apathy is a cancer of the soul. It is a hardness of heart that needs to be exposed, that needs to be recognized, and needs to be confessed and turned from. A soft heart, when it hears this glorious good news of God's grace, even if it's for the thousandth time, continues to grow in a love for God. Why? Because he first loved me. I'm just responding to what he's done for me. Responds in a growing love for God, for people. Why? Because God has loved me. How can I not love other people? And a growing zeal for the mission of God. Sure, we're busy people. Sure, there's a lot going on. God and his glory and his purposes are the most important. And when a soft heart hears the gospel of Christ crucified for my sin, for your sin, that's how it responds. Growing love for God, for others, and zeal for mission. God is unchanging. His judgment is unchanging. It's the same light. It's the same heat. It's just a question of what kind of heart is it confronting? Today is a gracious invitation to soften, to fear God and keep his commandments, to walk in relationship with him. I'm going to pray before we stand in worship. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are all wise. And as we see 
the plague on Egypt of turning the Nile into blood, we're reminded of your greatest act of saving judgment, Christ on the cross, where you judge sin in order to save sinners. Lord, would you make our hearts soft? Would you empower us to respond in greater love and obedience? We ask these things through Jesus, our King. Amen. Let's stand and worship.